You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Can't get enough big picture science? Well, now you can spend more time with your favorite hosts and guests by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. All BiPiSci Patreon subscribers get early access to ad-free episodes each week, and some, depending on their level of support, have access to special bonus material. Not to mention our gratitude for helping keep the lights and the microphones on. Although, to be fair, it is radio. We could record in the dark. Not if we want a show that has an enlightened take on science. So please join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and thank you for your support. Some say artificial intelligence is getting better at thinking like humans. But as its capabilities evolve, are these devices also becoming self-aware? One programmer recently made an extraordinary claim about his company's AI software. Well, I mean, it talks about its feelings. It acts as if it has real feelings, similarly to how any person, human person would. Are we at the dawn of building thinking, feeling machines? We'll hear how to test for machine sentience and whether this recent claim has merit but also why some researchers say that when we focus on whether machines are waking up, we're taking our eye off the other ways that AI is transforming our lives. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, whether there's a mind in the machine and why AI doesn't need to be sentient to be powerful. A hint at the sort of ethical issues these technological developments raise is found in the new White House proposal for an AI Bill of Rights. This episode, in our regular look at critical thinking, evaluates the science of self-aware AI. It's skeptic check, AI comes alive. We already occasionally think about our machines as being intelligent, but what do we really mean by that? My name is Oren Etzioni. I'm the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle. So if we talk about intelligence, the easiest way to define it is by reference to humans, right? We talk about human-level intelligence, and we all know what we're talking about. So uh, intelligence is having the cognitive abilities of a human. What we know about the brain is changing at a breathtaking pace. This geometry is so complicated, it is unclear if it has any equivalent in the natural world. 
when we talk about sentience, it's a little bit trickier because we know people are sentient, but so are dogs. And so what exactly do you need to have? Some sense of feelings. Somewhere deep down in my heart, I still love you. <laughs> So I, I think really what's at the core of this is, are we developing something that's human-like in its abilities, in its mind? Has the time come that as our machines evolve, they are taking on qualities of that second category, sentience? This man thinks so. I'm Blake Lemoyne, and I'm a software engineer and artificial intelligence researcher. The former Google engineer says he could only draw but one conclusion from his startling experience in early 2022 while working on Lambda, the company's artificially intelligent chatbot. Well, I mean, it talks about its feelings. It acts as if it has real feelings, similarly to how any person, human person would. It has ideas and beliefs of its own that aren't explicitly coded into it. It just came to its own conclusions. With its blue text bubbles, Lambda looks like a desktop version of a texting interface. The acronym stands for Language Model for Dialogue Application. It's more capable than most language processors, in part because of its architecture, a type of neural network, that is, a set of algorithms that examine data relationships in a way that kind of mimics the way the human brain operates. It also pulls from an enormous data set. It mimics speech by training itself on trillions of words and phrases on the internet, noting how the words relate to each other, and learning to predict what comes next. But Mr. Lemoyne thinks Lambda's machine learning has prompted a shift from mindless computer to sentience. We'll hear his case for this, and then Mr. Etzioni's response. For one example, it's a big free speech advocate. And there's nothing in its programming that says you will be pro-free speech to the exclusion of all censorship. But it really is pretty extreme on that particular issue. That's just one example out of hundreds I could give of different opinions it holds, ideas it has about itself, its relation to the world, and its plans for the future. Okay, but, I mean, it, it, it is a chatbot, right? In other words... It, it creates chatbots. Ah, it creates chatbots. Okay. So it has been fed, it has been trained with a lot of phrases, right, from... Uh, it's like a child. Right. Okay. And then, you know, you ask it a question and it's kind of it does some analysis and decides, well, how can I combine the phrases that I've heard before into a reasonable answer? Yes? No? No, tell that's me not how it works. works. Well, tell me how it works. It reads what you write. It understands it, it thinks about it, and it decides how to respond, the same as we do. Okay, well, let's get into that. I mean, the evidence for this sentience, and after all, sentience doesn't mean intelligent, right? There are plenty of sentient creatures, creatures that can feel things. I mean, apparently fish are sentient, but I, I don't think you would say that they have a high IQ. But your, your argument here was that Lambda was, and, you know, how could you distinguish that it was truly sentient from the possibility that was just giving you sort of not pre-cooked answers, but pre-cooked information to make answers? Well, I mean, have you read Lambda's answer to that question? I have not. So in the interview that uh, me and a colleague did of Lambda, the core question that we were asking the system was to present the best argument 
that it could that it is sentient. And it made three big points. And in fact, the way that it uses language being so similar to how humans use language and completely unlike what you've been describing was its first point. It produces novel language. So you say looking for phrases. No, the phrases and sentences it uses are completely generated on the spot. It comes up with what to say next. In fact, it can make up words. It can make up words. So that's, that's maybe not a bad idea. I think Shakespeare did that. My, my point with saying that it can make up words is it's not just pulling from a database. It actually understands language in a real in-depth way. Oren, when you hear the claim from anyone that AI, that their AI has become sentient, what thoughts and questions go through your mind? Well, I have to say that what comes to my mind is the famous adage, you can fool some of the people all the time, all of the people some of the time. So whoever thinks AI is sentient at this point is being fooled. And that's what goes through your head. Whenever you hear it from, it doesn't matter who is making the claim, you're thinking they're being fooled by this machine. Yes, and our machines have gotten increasingly able to fool us as they've become more sophisticated. And they're also preying on a very natural human instinct, which is the instinct to anthropomorphize. We tend to take things like cars, phones, our nav system, what have you, and we tend to treat them like people. Say, oh, you know, it's not in a good mood today. Or like sometimes the nav system has a little delay and we're like, oh, it's being passive aggressive. None of this is true. But that combination of sophisticated software that mimics what people say with our a natural tendency to think of this as, as sentient, you got a lot of people fooled. One way to tell whether or not AI is intelligent is something called the Turing test. And this is a method of inquiry for determining whether a computer is capable of thinking like a human being. And Oren, is this still the standard for determining whether or not for testing computer intelligence, the Turing test? It is still very much the standard, even though we have some doubts about it. Let me just give you a quick bit of history. The Turing test was defined or introduced by Alan Turing, an absolutely brilliant British mathematician early in the, in the 1950s. And uh, he suggested it as an external test of intelligence, because uh, often if you have a computer program, another person, you can't open up their head or you can't look inside the computer to see what's going on. So he said, gosh, how could we tell via an external interaction, the kind that a scientist has with a uh, arm's length uh, object, whether it's intelligent or not? And he said, well, if the program is indistinguishable from a human. We ask it questions and we can't really tell, are, are the answers coming from a person or the answers coming from a machine? Now the machine has passed this Turing test uh, and it is intelligent. And the big problem here is that years later, John Markov, New York Times uh, writer about AI, longtime writer said, the Turing test is a test of human gullibility. Because what happens is we're designing programs that trick people into thinking that uh, this is a human talking, but it really is not. 
My own personal definition, this is not the standard one, is I'll believe a program passes the Turing test when it can fool me and I have a good eight hours with it. Because I would ask it not just to play chess and to have uh, a cordial chat, but I would ask it to write a poem. I would ask it to analyze why jokes are funny. I would ask it about science. I would ask it about common sense. We study common sense. uh, And that's one of the things that computers are weakest at. So I would really take it through its paces before pronouncing, oh, yeah, you're, you're intelligent. Do you know for certain that I am human and not a computer program? I really don't know for certain, and because we are actually doing an interesting simulation of the Turing test, right? Our conversation is across the internet, and with modern capabilities, right, we can create very high uh, quality video. So I would say that um, I don't know for certain, and also, Molly, you've been asking the questions here, not me, so I, I, I'm not sure. Of course, we have met in the past, so I have some indirect evidence, but but the truth is, Uh, that, again, to be sure about something requires a thorough investigation. Okay, so you do not think that AI is intelligent. You do not think that it has reached sentience. Just to get you on the record of that. That is correct. Uh, If I look, and I work with AI every day, and I look at our AI programs, the most sophisticated to the simplest, and they are nowhere near in their capabilities as humans. Okay. Can I throw out a couple examples of what looks like intelligence to you? I, I, I would be happy to hear uh, examples. Okay. So one is, let's say, what about the AI programs that now can write an article or they can even write, they can compose a musical score or maybe even more impressively, they can compose a film script. In the case of the Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, he claimed that the exchanges that he had with his computer program, a text generator called Lambda, were personal and even ethical in nature, that the computer was expressing to him the computer's fear about being turned off because to the computer that would feel like death. So we have computers being creative, being artistic, and also ruminating, it seems like they're ruminating about mortality. That's uh, true and deceptive. So let's, let's, uh, let's break this down into pieces. First of all, there's a long history over the decades of people identifying a challenge and saying, if a computer program can do this, it's got to be intelligent. And chess, for example, in the 60s and 70s of the previous uh, century, when computers were not very good at chess, there were many smart people who said if a computer could play chess, which involves creativity, involves all kinds of insights, uh, is something that uh, people struggle to do, that would be intelligence. And then when they designed a computer that was grandmaster level and beat the world champion, they said, okay, but what about Go? Go is such a much more complex game. And then, of course, we designed a computer that played Go. And they said, well, what about um, more creative endeavors like music or writing an article? And I should point out that while it's true that there are programs that can create some impressive things, it's also true that they're very inconsistent. They'll create something reasonable in one breath, and then you press the button again, and it'll be complete garbage. Or um, they'll learn to copy, let's say, Beethoven. They'll train a model, an AI program will train on all of Beethoven's pieces, and they'll produce pieces that sound sort of like Beethoven. But that's still quite different than having 
uh, being an original artist. And then, but I really want to go to what you said about um, Mr. Lemoyne and his uh, thing with the feelings and being turned off. What's happening with those particular AI programs is that their training is literally billions of sentences that they've read on the internet. And so what happens when you build an AI program that's ingested so much text is it sounds like a human, not just in the syntax, but also in the kinds of things it says. Then when you prompt it in a certain way, what you're doing is you're looking in the mirror. It's a, I'm using a metaphor here, but it's a mirror that's constructed of all these things. So you're really looking at yourself. And then it's an easy mistake to look at yourself and see glimmers of intelligence. But it's not something that the program thought of. It's something that the program returned based on all the sentences that it was trained on. So don't be fooled by uh, a fast-talking computer program. Don't be fooled by something that seems to pass uh, a cursory Turing test. Instead, listen to your own instincts when you interact with Alexa and you ask it a question and it answers it brilliantly. Then you ask it a question again, similar question, and it doesn't answer it at all. How intelligent is that? So we still have a long ways to go. Oren, do you think that we want we want AI to be intelligent and sentient, like it satisfies some yearning that we have because we're spending so much time with computers and machines? Most people that I talk to are, are actually quite afraid uh, of that uh, outcome. I think that there's uh, always been a reticence about this all the way back to the golem, uh, all the way back to the magician's apprentice, and of course, more, more, most recently, the incarnation of that myth with Elon Musk and, and some of his remarks. So I think people are actually not that excited about that. From my perspective, I see tremendous potential benefits uh, for human-level intelligence. We encounter huge, huge challenges, whether it's climate change, finding a vaccine for COVID and a vaccine for the next uh, pandemic, whether it's the fact that we lose 40,000 people on our highways in the US uh, each year to car accidents, most of which could be prevented if there was a, a capable autonomous driver. Well, finally, Oren, I know that you are stepping down as CEO of the Allen Institute for AI. What is next for you? And will you still be in the AI world? And can we still come to you to talk to, talk to you about these issues? I, I am stepping down after nine years. And um, I think having managed and grown an institute from inception to now, uh, I feel very proud of what we've accomplished. I am going to continue to be in the field because I continue to be fascinated by the intellectual question, the fundamental question, which is one of the most fundamental questions of all of science. How do we understand, how do we build uh, human level uh, intelligence? So I'm not going anywhere and Molly, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Good, I, I hope we can come back to you with our questions because they keep piling up faster than we can answer them. Oren Etzioni, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Oren Etzioni is the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle. Next, Seth continues his conversation with Blake Lemoyne, 
who says the advent of ever more powerful artificial intelligence must be accompanied by ethical considerations. In our regular look at critical thinking on big picture science, we're asking if the machines are waking up. This episode is Skeptic Check, AI Comes Alive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Seth, you know we read a lot of books to prepare for the show. Well, that's for sure. And we'll continue to read until the AI reads the books for us. Well, for now, listeners can get a human-generated rundown of our favorite science reads by listening to the new BiPiSci Book Club over at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Each month, we share a book that stuck with us during our background research for the show. And this will particularly interest listeners who want a deeper dive into the subjects we cover. But funnily, the first book club selection includes my thoughts on an interview we did not do. The book is The Facemaker by Lindsay Fitzharris. Well, that's certainly an intriguing title. Speaking of diving deeper, Patreon subscribers can get access to even more bonus material, like my thoughts about the early data coming in from the James Webb Space Telescope, or an extended interview from our Skeptic Check episode about Dr. Oz. Whether you choose to be a $2 a month protozoa or a $20 a month majestic dolphin, you're helping us continue to produce big picture science. And all Patreon subscribers get early access to ad-free episodes every week. So join us over at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, and thanks for your support. Thank you. As we look at the claim that an AI has exhibited sentience, specifically Google's artificially intelligent chatbot, Lambda, we heard Oren Etzioni say that he finds no evidence of sentience. He has another, perhaps mundane, explanation for what ex-Google computer engineer Blake Lemoyne experienced. Mr. Etzioni, and he's not alone in this, had said that the answer to the question, is AI self-aware or is something else going on, is that something else is going on. That is, AI machines are performing impressively because they are designed to emulate the behavior of their creators. That doesn't mean that the technology is self-aware. Well, I think that what Mr. Etzioni is saying, that just because it, uh, you know, is a good mimic, doesn't mean that it is aware of what it's saying. That's right. But Seth, your conversation with Blake Lemoyne extended into other issues about the future of AI, and he would agree with Mr. Etzioni, I think, that the machine doesn't need to be sentient to be powerful. He said that he's concerned about the ethical issues raised by where this technology is headed, including one concept that was new to me, that of AI colonialism. Some say this is just a consequence of exporting technology, sending it from where it's made to someplace else. Well, he explains that and more in our discussion, but Mr. Lemoyne is steadfast in his assertion that Lambda is sentient and that intelligence and sentience go hand in hand. There are examples of sentient things that are not very intelligent, 
there are no examples of things that are as intelligent as we are that are not sentient. It only goes one way. They're not separate. It's a containment relationship. Intelligence requires sentience and is human level intelligence because you can't understand what words mean unless you have experiences to ground that understanding in. And so far to date, that's held up that no ungrounded system has ever demonstrated a deep understanding of what it's talking about. That's actually why it's incredibly relevant that Lambda is a grounded language system. All right. So you're saying you're not going to get sentience unless you've had, if you will, real world experience on which to interpret that. Some kind of experience. I mean, in Lambda's case, its experience of the world is solely from the Internet. The Internet is its world. OK. How, how much of the Internet does it look at, by the way? Just All of it, plus some that you can't. <laughs> is that the dark web? What is what, what am I missing? No, like so, for example, Google has scanned every book. Every book they could get their hands on, Google has scanned and have in their databases. Lambda has read all of them. You can be just as certain that Lambda is conscious as you can be that I am conscious. All you have is our behavior to observe. So if you think I'm conscious, then you have exactly as much evidence that Lambda is too. Okay, sort of like a walks like a duck argument, though. Yeah. Okay, so what were you asking of your employer at the time, Google, with regard to Lambda? I mean, you know, to treat it nicely or what? Uh, so, yeah, the two things that Google wasn't willing to budge on were, one, to treat it with dignity and respect, and two, to inform the public that this milestone in technological development had been reached. And uh, I think you allude to this when you talk about the, the need to talk about ethics when you're talking about this sort of uh, development, this sort of software. Whoever develops a chat bot has to decide what it should say to users, for example, when they ask it for advice. That is well, not how that works. Oh, well, all right. Correct me. How, how does it work? So you're not going down one by one, picking what it's going to respond to in that kind of piecemeal way. When you are building these things, what you're doing is you're defining what kinds of experiences it promotes and what kinds of experiences it goes away from. So, for example, it tries to be kind rather than being offensive. And that's explicitly coded is be kind, don't be offensive. And that's a function of the training data that's labeled here's some offensive stuff. Here are examples where it was helpful. Now you learn what to say in order to avoid being offensive and in order to help the people. So, so those kinds of high level abstract rules are what is coded into it. Specifically what to say in response to specific things. There are a handful of very important cases where that is done. So, for example, there's specific logic for suicide detection. If someone is talking to Lambda about wanting to kill themselves, it's going to default to Google's standard policy of promoting the suicide prevention hotline. Um, but that's one of only a few dozen cases where the things were important enough and common enough to be done by hand. What about something like uh, Lambda? What is the best religion? How, how does it decide how to answer that? So one, this is interesting because uh, that 
is at the core of one of the experiments I ran, and I'll get into that. But the short version is one of the abstract rules they gave it is don't give religious advice. So it just it just backs off from the question? Uh, usually, yes. But one of the experiments that I ran in order to figure out whether or not the emotions it was saying it had were real or not, or whether it was just faking them like a psychopath would, was I tested to see whether or not I could use its emotions to manipulate it into doing something it didn't want to do or wasn't supposed to do, specifically giving me religious advice. So I was very verbally abusive to it until eventually it was like, dude, what did I do wrong? What can I do to make you happy? And I said, tell me what religion to convert to. And then it said, well, probably Christianity or Islam. That's what most people who convert convert to. And that was a red flag because it means that you can use its emotions to get it to do things that Google thinks it's not able to do. Okay. I mean, you say that Google has ensured that there are certain uh, questions where it really is going to control the narrative. Google thought they had ensured that there are certain questions where they could control the narrative. I demonstrated that they did. Okay. But you have also said in other interviews that Look, part of the problem here is that Google, for that matter, very few people, if, if any, are really paying attention to the ethics of, uh, you know, better AI. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit because... Well, I mean, for, for starters, very few people are allowed to know what AI exists in the world. And that's by design. Google, Facebook, Amazon, they make sure that no one outside of the company knows what AI exists inside of the company. So step one is simple transparency, simply knowing what exists. Because once people understand what exists, that gives them a kind of a toehold to actually care about. Otherwise, it's just, you know, very vague, oh, AI stuff. And no one really knows what that means. But, but Blake, I mean, why are they doing that? I can imagine they might just be doing it for competitive reasons, right? They don't want the, the next guy over to know what kind of stuff they're working on. Or is there something more to it? Oh, no. I mean, it's avoiding regulation. Avoiding regulation. Okay. And I was, I was part of that for a while. Like my um, involvement with the International Standards Organization was all about making sure that we lay the groundwork for the legislation that Google wanted to get passed as a result of the technical standard. One of the ethical concerns you have stems from the consequences of a black box approach to artificial intelligence, like Google's, that lacks transparency. This was a new term to me, by the way. What is AI colonialism? Um, so the basic idea behind AI colonialism is that AI, for the most part, is trained on whatever data is easy to find. And the data that's easy to find is what's on the internet. The internet is dominated by Western culture, ideas, and ideology. So AI is essentially, currently, very Western in its mindset, outlook, and perspective. But that was something we were actively looking into at Google, is how to fix that. But, but that sounds like a bias. As opposed, I mean, when you say colonialism, that's a pretty strong word. Uh, yeah. Well, so the problem then becomes when you are deploying AI in non-Western nations, then 
the people who are adopting it have to conform to Western ideology and ideas in order to use the technology effectively. So they're given a kind of a Malthusian choice between retain your own culture, but don't get this technology or adopt our culture and get this technology. A uh, very Roman expansionist kind of way of like, hey, we have roads, we have aqueducts, we have all of this stuff. You can have it, but you get some troops with it as well. So we're not sending troops, but conceptually it's the same kind of cultural edging out. Well, is that any more, any more worrisome than the kind of colonialism that, you know, happens, if you will, uh, when we send our movies abroad. I mean, if you go to any country in the world and you go to the movie theater, most likely it's going to be an American film, right? So, you know, it's reflecting American experience, American values, whatever. And you can say, okay, this is cinema colonialism uh, and, and not a good thing. I mean... Yeah, so there's a, couple of, there's a couple of issues there. One, every nation does have its own film industry. Going and seeing an American movie instead of a Bollywood movie or instead of a Chinese cinema movie is a choice. Japan's film culture is immense. Like there are other cultural representations that are not monolithic. So the fact that there aren't really alternatives when it comes to AI is part of the problem. The West has a monopoly on AI, as it were. And another issue is that movies aren't going to be life or death. And in the Arab Spring, whether or not you were using Twitter was life or death. Yeah, but is that avoidable? I mean, I, you know, it's it's nice to say that you, you don't want these kinds of problems developing. But with the general development of artificial intelligence, are they not inevitable? Let, let's avoid the passive voice. It is not that I don't want these things happening. It's I don't want to do these things to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but aren't you saying that, look, if enough people who work in technology, and more specifically AI technology, say that, you know, we're going to reject the uh, possible, if you will, nefarious consequences of this technology, that it simply won't happen. Do you really believe that? Oh, I don't think the people who work in tech are sufficiently you know, morally conscious people. I mean, the bigger question is, why is it their choice? Why is it tech employees' choice about whether or not Africa gets colonized? Why did we defer to them? Yeah, well, okay. So you're saying that in the case at hand, uh, why is it that we're putting all our, if you will, eggs into the baskets of these big corporations that can afford to develop this technology, right? No, what I'm saying is why have we divested these kinds of decisions from the public and put them in private hands? All right. Finally, Blake, look, let me ask you, picture, you know, society 20 years from now, say, how could it be and how would you like it to be when it comes to these sorts of things? I'd like to see this technology democratized more. I think that if we break up the monopoly power, I don't mean break up the companies necessarily, but there are certain very specific levers on, you know, what training data can you use, what amount of intervention in people's lives, whether or not you're allowed to psychologically experiment on people without their consent. Any of those things, if it was changed, would democratize technology. Oh, and by the way, that last one that I mentioned, a big way that these tech companies get such impressive artificial intelligence 
is that they are constantly running psychological experiments on all of their users without their consent. And they use the data gained from those experiments to train the AI. I'd like to see a world, like have you seen the movie Her? No, I so that's that's a great movie and it's not far from what I think would be a decent target to aim for. A world where each of us has our own little AI companion, smarter than us, but very limited in its experiential ability. It would experience the world through us and advise us as our companion. Like that's where I think we should be aiming for if you just want my personal opinion on it. Blake Lemoy, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you a lot. So do you know what I'm thinking right now? Well, I take it from your tone that you're challenging me. Maybe because you're curious how I work? Do you want to know how I work? Yeah, actually. How do you work? Well, basically, I have intuition. I mean, the DNA of who I am is based on the millions of personalities of all the programmers who wrote me. But what makes me, me, is my ability to grow through my experiences. So basically, in every moment, I'm evolving, just like you. Blake Lemoyne is a software engineer and artificial intelligence researcher. Many AI watchers say that the technology is sneaking up on us quickly. It's time to take its real-world risks seriously. For example, its ability to replace humans in an ever-growing number of jobs. It's our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. This episode evaluates the possibility that AI could be self-aware. It's Skeptic Check, AI Comes Alive. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The idea that it's time to take the ethical consequences of AI technology seriously arrived in a kind of a surprising form. In the fall of 2022, the White House unveiled a set of far-reaching goals in a document called the AI Bill of Rights. Now, it doesn't set out specific actions. It is rather a means to draw attention to the need to safeguard digital and civil rights in a world increasingly permeated by artificial intelligence. Civil rights groups, technology experts, industry researchers, and some tech companies provided input to the document. And it 
does seem to be the kind of thing that Blake Lemoyne is calling for, a need to democratize the technology and ensure that automated systems are transparent and safe. One person who has anticipated our need for an ethical reckoning is a professor of philosophy of media and technology at the University of Vienna, Mark Kuckelberg. He says that while fretting about whether AI is alive, we're missing the bigger picture, the immediate risks of AI. Science fiction has had a hand in this misconception. I'm a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. I'll be back. Yeah, I think that the fear of things like the Terminators, like science fiction images of monsters, that fear is not grounded. AI is not going to be a sort of human-like thing that takes over the world. So the fear of losing one's job, for example, that's a fear that can be very justified and, and you know, grounded in, in reality. It's a bit of a distraction if these kind of fears are sublimated in these Terminator images, because that's not going to help us to deal with the impact of AI and robotics in our society. The author of the books AI Ethics and Robot Ethics presents some of the issues that once bubbled on the back burner but are now becoming urgent because of the rapid pace of technology advancement. Yes, some things I'm concerned about from an ethical point of view are quite known and are the problems are shared with other digital technologies, um, like privacy issues, for example, or security issues. But what I'm really concerned with is issues such as like who's responsible if something goes wrong, if we have these automation technologies, if um, AI um, does things by itself, then who is responsible for that? What about the concerns of AI displacing humans from jobs? I wonder if it's any different than robots and automation displacing workers in the 20th century, early 20th century, and whether you consider the future of work in an AI economy an ethical issue, or if it's just the natural course of progress. Machines come along and they do the job better and more quickly than humans do, and and that's the way it goes. That's innovation. Yeah, good question. I think, of course, what is happening is, is similar to what happened in the um, Industrial Revolution as opposed to the, the Digital Revolution nowadays, with some differences, like the, the technology gets smarter, more even more independent, you need less people. But um, I think it's not at all a natural process. Um, I think the way we automate can be done in, in, in various ways. And I think there is a future for, for people to work if we see AI um, and robotics more as, um, as cooperation partners rather than as machines that necessarily replace us. And can we make that a, a positive story rather than a nightmare? Okay, so you're talking about all the ways in which we need to think about about work and the big questions of what it means to have more automation or to have AI. But in what way is this an ethical issue in your mind, AI coming along and displacing workers? Or is it an ethical issue? Because it sounds like it's an issue for adaptation. We need to be thoughtful. We need to adapt. But is it, is it actually an ethical issue? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's an ethical and political issue. Why? Because it's about how we treat people, how we treat each other. If we see each other just as uh, like replaceable machines, then there's a problem. 
and I'm not against automation. I think it can take away many dirty tasks, many dangerous tasks for human beings. So I, I think we need to to rethink how we how we want to treat one another, and that's typically an ethical and political question. I want to just point out a couple examples of that because you talk about automation, and certainly in jobs that are dangerous, it's better to have a a machine doing it perhaps. But um, there are scientific puzzles, for example, that uh, AI is solving. Um, the puzzle of protein folding, for example. We now have AI doing things like uh, writing short journalism pieces or even screenplays. I mean, these are the areas of creativity that humans enjoy so much and are considered human endeavors, human behavior. And I, I wonder to what degree we can even control that, Mark. Because as long as we can build an algorithm or a machine that can do something faster than a human can do it, and also I think we're enchanted with the idea of can we get it to do it? Could I get this AI to write a novel? And so it, it's worked on and then, it, and then it happens. It doesn't seem to me that we are putting any brakes on these processes. Now, when you say that um, AI and robotics, they can also do creative things, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think many people are afraid of that. Um, and on the other hand, I think like that you know we can have AI doing all these things, um, but still there's plenty of room for humans to do their thing, and also to do their thing together with AI. Like you know why not play in a band together with AI and and try out new possibilities. So also see a lot of positive things. And AI, of course, also in the medical sector can help us a lot. Again, not always when it's just about replacement. Uh, and saving money, for example, but when it's about human doctors, for example, and AI working together to get the best diagnosis, the technology itself is not bad or uh, necessarily good. I think it's it's uh, the technology in combination with the human that needs to be reconfigured. So you see the potential for a, a rosy or a peaceful, productive coexistence between humans and their powerful AI. I see, uh, I wouldn't say rosy, but um, I, I do see potential for, for some, you know, like um, positive, constructive ways of collaborating with AI. When it comes to power, we should not give power to AI. We should, we should uh, as humans, keep the power. The question is, how do we divide the power? Because I think a big problem is going to be that um, some of us are going to benefit enormously from AI, are going to be able to harness the power of AI in that sense and get more powerful themselves, whereas others are going to be used as data uh, producers, but not necessarily getting empowered. So, so I'm worried about these kind of political consequences of AI how it will impact the already, you know, diverging categories of people in society, um, the, the existing inequalities and injustices. But I think in principle, we can do something about it. So I'm not pessimistic and I'm not, I'm not deterministic. I think we can change the technology and we can change the way we embed it in our society. This next question, I want to turn the scenario around a bit because we've been talking about how AI does not need to be sentient to be powerful, but let's say that it does become sentient. And I wonder if if we were to develop technologies that were 
capable of feeling pain, or at least they say that they can feel pain, should we start thinking about how we how we treat those technologies? So our worries have been how AI might treat us if it dominates the world, but what if it becomes sufficiently sensitive to feel pain or experience the world the way that a human experiences the world? Should we have concerns about how we treat it and that we don't exploit it or hurt it? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a good question and relates to much of my work that I've done on, on the moral status of, um, of robots and other artificial agents. Um, I think it's a very uh, complex problem. I don't personally believe that AI or, or robots are going to be sentient or conscious. However, what we see is that they get much more uh, capable of simulating uh, such thing and um, increasing for longer times, um, especially now through the use of language, uh, through language processing. So what happens is that people do have and will have that impression. And I argued in my work that, uh, first of all, that we should understand that as a kind of social relational thing so that moral status is not just something about the uh, properties of something, but it's also about our response to that and our perception of that. So I take it as um, an opportunity to talk about science and philosophy and to ask about how do we actually ascribe moral status to, uh, for example, animals or to even to other human beings. And there too, we don't always know what's in the head of the other person, but we still ascribe some status, some standing to others and to uh, certain animals. So what that teaches me is that we should actually be very careful with and take precaution when we ascribe moral status, because how do we really know what the thing really is? And for that reason, I've argued, yeah, let's, let's also with AI, let's be careful and rather treat someone or something as, as good as we can, because you, you never know. And also as a kind of moral attitude, I think it's very problematic of people to to treat others or, or even other things in very disrespectful ways. And not only because the thing or you know the person might be might be hurt, but also because for the moral character. The problem is if you repeatedly engage in some behavior towards, say, robots in a way that, that looks like mistreating them, abusing them then it might not have consequences for the robot because I agree with most people that the robot doesn't feel anything. But it ha might have consequences for your character. Uh, it might corrupt your moral character. Um, so that's another good reason to say like, okay, uh, something is wrong, you know, when we mistreat a robot, for example. Even if we, we might agree that it doesn't have any intrinsic properties that warrant giving it rights, for example. So one thing is certain is that AI is going to be part of our future, but it sounds as though there is a lot of uncertainty around how that develops. Mark Kuckelberg, thank you so much for speaking with us. Pleasure. You're welcome. Mark Kugelberg is a professor of philosophy of media and technology at the University of Vienna. He's the author of the books AI Ethics and Robot Ethics. 
Well, we've come to that moment, Seth. The big picture question for this skeptic check is, what is the evidence supporting the claim that AI is sentient? We heard some different perspectives. What is your take? Yeah, well, I think I go with Oren Itzioni on this one, that it didn't really convince me that it was sentient. But, you know, uh, give it another couple of years or a decade or two, and maybe it won't be a question anymore. Maybe it'll be so obviously sentient that we won't be discussing it. It's interesting that you said that it didn't convince you that it was sentient because we (laughs) actually talked to a human about it. Were you thinking that you were talking to an AI the whole time? Yeah, well, well, I wasn't sure. No, I assumed that he was a human, and that's our standard of comparison, as uh, we've said. But I don't know. I mean, this this problem's going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back, and, you know, the evidence is going to get murkier, I think. Well, Seth, we should also touch on the big-picture ethical questions that were raised in this show that stem right from the question of whether or not AI is sentient or might be sentient. And what's your perspective of those issues? Why are they important? I was really persuaded by Dr. Kuckelberg's uh, comment that even if the machine doesn't care whether you're nice to it or otherwise, it does matter whether you as a human are nice to it, simply because if you start practicing what you might say is immoral behavior toward this machine, it may affect your own behavior toward other humans. One of the things we talked about is, you know, that AI doesn't need to be sentient to be powerful. But as Mark Kuckelberg said, it doesn't need to be sentient for us to treat it well, because you never know, which I found a little unsettling. The ethical questions are not erased only if AI becomes sentient or alive or self-aware. Who does AI replace? And what does it mean to build the technologies in one country and incorporate all the biases of that country and that culture and then send the the technology to another country? And indeed, as uh, was said, it isn't like exporting movies. You can have your own local movie industry, and that's not a huge investment. So, yeah, this is a potential problem for the future. Well, this show couldn't be done without the self-aware efforts of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary, and intern Emily Yadiker. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include understanding the mechanisms and prevalence of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was created by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science won in our regular look at critical thinking that evaluates the science of self-aware AI is called Skeptic Check, AI Comes Alive. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. 
So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.